This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our May edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. Bryce, how are you today? It's good. It's spring finally. Yeah, it is. It does feel like spring. So it's it's good to see you here in the studio. And uh, today we're going to try to tackle social media. What is it doing to us? And uh, can we and our democracy survive it? So I know you and I are both fans of NYU psychologist Jonathan Haidt's work. He was sounding the alarm early on social media and the connection between it and teen depression, suicide, anxiety. You know, this was seven, eight years ago. Many folks were dismissing those claims as sort of ahead of the evidence. Well, now he's he and his colleagues have accumulated quite a bit of evidence that's connecting particularly Instagram with depression, anxiety, and suicide ideation and suicide action among teenage girls in particular. Yeah, how do you feel about the height work in general and this this body of work trying to link social media to some some bad outcomes with mental health? Look, it's it's a hard thing to ultimately establish causality for. We know the trend, so the description is terrifying, right? Which is that's basically starting in 2009, teenage mental health statistics, basically in any one you want to pick, suddenly started spiking up, particularly for girls. Right. Uh, And they are up massively. Now, the suicide stuff, it's just reversing a downward trend, right? So we're basically back where we were when we were in high school. Right. But like it had Things were getting better for a period of time. But for 20 years, there had been, they had been collapsing. And so suddenly, 2009, roughly everything starts reversing and, you know, depression, suicide ideation, suicide attempts are all up enormously, terrifyingly, uh, I think is the way to think about it. And, you know, I mean, we're at now, I think it's like 40% of of adolescent girls are reporting persistent feelings of anxiety and depression. And we're seeing similar trends on campuses across different student cohorts. You know, some people will say, well, hey, this is just a question of measurement. If you're asking people over and over again, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling anxious? You're going to get more yeses to that question. But- we're also seeing this in hard measures, people taking their own lives. And that's the, you know, I mean, so the, you know, the other thing that people pushed back on was, oh, it's just now we're more comfortable talking about it, Yeah, right? Which is always a bit bogus. I mean, maybe not the depression ones, because we didn't ask those questions, but certainly like, you know, have you ever thought about suicide was a question that I took. I took the youth high school, whatever the CDC survey is. I remember taking it when I was a sophomore. Yeah. You know, that data goes back to the early 90s when I was in school. And, you know, we, we were asking these questions then and people were saying, yes, I have thought about suicide mm-hmm. and I have made a plan to commit suicide. So that part, you know, I mean, that decline was real. And so I, I never really bought into the it's just we're more comfortable. There may be a little bit of that. But, yeah, I mean, the actual like emergency room statistics are what what's spiking along with all of this. Right. So with the fact that we're seeing more adolescents in emergency rooms uh, having, you know, with some sort of self-harm. Yeah, this is real. Like whatever you want to talk about, this is a real problem. These are real trends that we need to start a understand mm-hmm. and then say, OK, well, what are we going to try and do to reverse this? Right. And so you can 
also ask the question, like, is this pandemic related? Is it sort of exacerbated in the last two years? We've certainly seen some exacerbation, but these trends started long before pandemic. So you can kind of dismiss the pandemic as, as, a, as a single cause. It may be as a catalyst of a sort. Or yeah, or it may have exacerbated, right. you know, or accelerant, accelerated whatever was going on. But the reality is, is that these trends were going on long before our, lo- our little friend, the coronavirus, started spreading around. <laughs> our little friend. Yeah. So wh- wh- what do we know about mechanism? You know, because that's, that's one thing that I think was a common critique of this, this body of research. It was saying, you know, correlation is not causation. How are we trying to establish causation? Well, obviously, when the, way, the way we really want to establish causation is through experiment. Right. And we actually now have a couple of experiments. A friend of mine from graduate school, a guy named Matthew Jenskow, who's at Stanford, mm-hmm. he has two papers now where we have experimental evidence, not necessarily focused on teen girls, but the first was him and a group of colleagues in 2018. Uh, in the weeks before the 2018 election, they paid people to deactivate their Facebook accounts randomly. Okay. Right. And what did we learn? Well, we learned that so you know your subjective well-being report went up. Your uh, polarization went down. Your knowledge of the news went down. Mm-hmm. And there was some other evidence that basically that people were addicted to this. And then a, then a newer paper uh, with a guy named Hunt Alcott on digital leaks, which was about Facebook, that they paid, they put an app on people's phones that put a hard limit on how much time you could spend on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, your browser, and then basically said, look, we'll pay you for every minute that right. you reduce. Right. And... Again, they found that when you paid people, people spent a lot less time. And then when you took the money away, they kept spending less time. And you know, they they followed up for six weeks follow after the the initial experimental period, and people continued to reduce it. And then, you know, that combined with some other evidence, basically what they figured out was about a third of the time that people spend on their phones in those kinds of apps is due to self control problems. Right. They don't want to do it. But they're addicted to it, or you know, whatever the paper's called, digital addiction. People can go check it out. But so yeah, so I mean, we know that it's addictive. We know that uh, it was designed to be addictive. And that addiction piece, though, let's pause on that for a moment because that's kind of a controversial term in many ways. I mean, there is a a neuropsychologist at Columbia, Dr. Carl Hart, who does work on on actual drugs, where he pays crack addicts or cocaine addicts to stop using cocaine and he says because i can find the inflection point where they say you know i'd rather have the dollar or however many dollars versus another dose is evidence that the addiction is not this chemical mechanism that we necessarily think it is so yeah how we sort of frame addiction in this conversation is probably going to be a little bit loose in in those terms yeah so yeah so i think that yeah we'll just use the language they use which is self-control problems right it's Mm -hmm. something it's not it's not that I'm like, this is clearly the best use of these minutes. It's I'm here because something has put me here. And when I'm given the opportunity to try and restrict it, I do. Yeah. So um, there's this self-control problem. We, we are inclined to use more of this thing. And we'll get into the why of that in a moment. But let's talk about the why does it hurt us? So I think there's a couple of different hypotheses. Mm-hmm. So the first hypothesis, hypothesis is particularly the posting of pictures yes. of yourself. Uh, you know, but even I actually think, you know, I mean, whether it's pictures or not, a post is putting yourself out there. It is. And um, if you don't get the what you expect in terms of engagement, it feels bad. Right. 
and you start tracking oh, how many you know how much you know how many people are looking at this because there are all these little ways that you can look at the statistics on mm-hmm. all your various posts and you know and then you start spending a whole bunch of time not just thinking about the response to the post but planning the post and you know so you're just consuming a lot of your attention yes. in this area which you're investing yourself you're investing yourself in something and it's very easy not to get the feedback that you want out of it, right? So I think that's the, you know, we'll call that the direct. Well, the feedback you want is 100% affirmation. Yeah. Like, you're the greatest, you're beautiful, all this positive affirmation. There's no such thing as enough likes. That's right. Right? There's no such thing as enough positive positive comments. Enough followers, comments. enough uh, friends, whatever it is. Absolutely. It's just, you're, you're just kind of, oh, let me get some more. Let me get some more. Mm-hmm. And let me look at it some more. And another direct effect of social media which again, I don't know about evidence for Then I've got plenty of anecdotal evidence from people who, they, they don't like the social comparison. Yeah. We're not good at actually evaluating our own lives, but I have some notion of my average. Mm-hmm. And what people put on social media is their best. And we and, think of it as their 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 life. Yeah. yeah. And it, I have this, at least for some people that have told me that this is why they quit, was they couldn't, even though they knew it, Yeah, they couldn't keep feel, from feeling less than mm-hmm. because of, how great everybody else looked. Yeah, um, and, and, and and so height makes the claim, and others do too, that this is particularly pernicious with young girls who are sort of entering puberty and, and going through this psychological and physical change and to be putting images of themselves out in public that get rated and reviewed and commented back on, as we just discussed, is, is particularly dangerous, dangerous to this group. And, you know, I mean, just think about our own pre-internet high school experience. Oh, yeah. Right? You're like, oh, man, they had the nicer car or they had, you know, they just, you know, they had nicer clothes or whatever. Now I can see every, I can see everything that you want to put, like the party that you went to. All of it. I didn't, I, I might have known that there was a party, but I didn't look at any pictures of it. I didn't feel like I missed out right? after seeing all these photos. I didn't, you know, I just knew there was a party at so-and-so's house and I didn't go. Like, whatever. Like, it didn't bother me because I wasn't like, oh, wait, so-and-so was there yeah. or this person was there or... You know, I didn't know where people went on vacation unless you were my close friend. Like, you know, so there's just all that kind of stuff. These, this kind of the emotions that are tied to we're social creatures. We want to compare ourselves. Yes. And, you know, this is just social comparison on steroids. And now somebody from your high school isn't just going to be the cool kid in high school. They could be the cool kid in the world, mm-hmm. right? They're an influencer and they're like getting all this stuff. And like, yeah, that's real power in a world where the currency is status. That's a job description that you know yeah. younger people want these days they say i want to become a social media influencer yeah you know Which and is, it can, i mean it can be a path to making millions of dollars yeah i mean there were kids that could be actors or whatever it was when we were kids but like where i was from i don't recall i don't think anybody was quote famous yeah uh, and in some ways this is a good thing like it's democratizing in a way like if you don't have the the resources to like hire a fancy acting coach and get yourself to new york or la like we can view that as benefit but it's coming at a big cost yeah right exactly. and that's that's where we have to struggle right is it worth it for some small number of people to be able to become rich is that worth the big spike in depression, anxiety, suicide. It seems like there's an obvious answer, which is that the cost to adolescence is probably not worth the fact right. that you can become famous. Right. You know, and it's also worth, you know, moving from the, the direct effects of social media bucket to there's also, you know, the other part of this is the indirect effects. Right. Which is what does this crowd out? All these hours that I'm spending on this thing, 
is coming at a cost. And let's just sort of quote some of these hours. Like Facebook weekly average use is about 16 hours. Instagram, eight hours. TikTok, 26 hours is average weekly use for the TikToker. So yeah, people are allocating huge portions of their life to this. And, and as you said, yeah, what sort of things is this crowding out? Yeah, and, and that's the part that they're on it, right? Again, this does not account for the time that you're spent thinking about what you're going to put on it or, you know, or the feelings that come after you have gotten off of it. Mm -hmm. There's lots of other stuff that you should be doing as a teenager. Get outside. Go interact with humans. (laughs) Read a book. We know that friends is literally one of the most important things that you can have in your life, right? That is clear. Health, wealth, you know, happiness. If you're saying, what is it that generates some of the biggest effects? I mean, I was reading a book recently by this guy named Robin Dunbar. But, you know, in the preamble, he's basically, well, why do we care about this? He cites this study, which basically is like having a good social framework in terms of its effect on your health is equivalent to quitting smoking. Wow. Right? Wow. I mean, friends are huge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If, you, know, you know, my own research on this is, you know, we're looking at time use data, which we, where we say people... Okay, well, what were you doing and how did it make you feel, right? And you say, well, what, are the, what is the thing that causes the biggest increase in how much you say you feel good? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's socializing. It's time with friends and family. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about the consequences of social media. And I think as we're emerging from pandemic, and hopefully that continues, we're all sort of living through that reality of being in person in our interactions, being able to socialize or converse or teach a class without a mask on and with the other person without having a mask on when that's safe. I mean, it is it has been liberating in so many ways. And I can feel the sort of scaffolding of mental health kind of coming back into play in my own mind. And across society, we have to be experiencing that as well. Well, hopefully, and hopefully we start doing more of it. But again, the problem with social media is it makes me feel some like simulation of yeah. social connection right. at a ridiculously low cost, mm-hmm. right? Because normally to interact with people is work, right? It's, yeah. It takes work, right? Yeah. I got to get dressed. I got to leave my house. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I got to like clean up. Like, I got to be presentable. Right. You got to drive somewhere or walk somewhere or travel somewhere. It's really hard. You know. And that's a very kind of, I mean, to draw from stoicism a little bit, it'd be interesting, or I think a useful framework for thinking about social media for the listener and for us is like, what is it stealing? Like, you're paying for this with your life. You're allocating time that you can't get back to this thing. What is that crowding out? It's crowding your attention, right? In fact, that's what the the digital addiction paper, like, you know, mm-hmm. when, when they were looked at social subjective well-being kind of stuff, the thing that moved the most was a measure of kind of attention, right? That's what you were giving up. That's what you get back when you don't put your time into social media is you get attention to do other stuff. And, you know, those are scarce. Effort, motivation, attention are scarce commodities in your life, 
right? And, you know, you should be thinking about how you want to allocate them just as you would your bank account. Mm -hmm. So Derek Thompson refers to social media as attention alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a really nice metaphor for what it is, is, you know, it's fine for a lot of people. It's totally okay to do it in some form of moderation. But like for some people, it really does. It hijacks your attention. And unlike alcohol, it's new. We've had alcohol forever. Yeah, it's not regulated. You know, it's, it's, a, we don't have a, a language norm. around it. There's a norm that you can do it everywhere all the time, pretty much, yeah. like in the aisle at the grocery store. We haven't built the infrastructure to, to say, okay, these are we understand the trade-offs, and we're going to regulate this in this way, and we're going to have these norms, and you know, and that's where it's why it's particularly dangerous for younger people. But I think another part of why we're seeing this trend in adolescent uh, mental health outcome is because of how we're parenting our kids, right? The accommodative helicopter, bulldozer, snowplow, whatever we want to call it, parenting, it's fundamentally about, I don't want my child to ever feel bad. And I think what we are learning increasingly with things like cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure therapy or whatever it is, is that those work really well, right? I mean, the evidence base just keeps growing, right? And so a part of what we think of as childhood historically was it was just a, this, you know, well-developed form of yeah, well, you get this much ways. stress at this age and you get this stress and you just kind of have to kind of, you start learning. And you know, look, it's not perfect, right? You know, I mean, you know, the, the modern equivalent to this is we talk about allergies, right? And, you know, peanut allergies in particular, we have a lot of evidence for, which is Part of the problem we have with peanut allergies is because we started treating peanut allergies, yeah. right? Take away the peanuts. Take away the peanuts. Peanut and, and then, you know, we learned that, oh, actually, if you just keep exposing kids, then they'll typically, most for the most part, they'll get right. better. Right. But there's some that don't. And, you know, I, our children are kind of the same way, right? They need to be doing developmentally appropriate risk-taking so that they're able to handle certain stressors. Yeah, I mean, that's what life's about, stress and adaptation. And in many ways... You know, this this framework that um, a neurobiologist, Anna Lemke, has put out in her recent book, what's it called, Dopamine Nation? Yeah, Dopamine Nation. Explain that framework because it, it, it sort of provides an elegant way for understanding what's going on in our brains with regard to pleasure and pain. So, you know, basically she views dopamine as this key chemical, right? It's the mm -hmm. key motivator. Yeah. Right? And it evolved uh, over the course of millennia in humans uh, as a way to get us to, you know, oh, we did something, we felt good whatever, we ate some fruit, right? Yeah. Well, that was really good. I should keep walking now and go find some more. Sure, because you have to put the effort in to go That's finding right. the more fruit. Right, so dopamine is this wonderful motivation system in a world of scarcity. That we had millions of years to adapt, to develop and adapt to. Yeah, and we lived in scarcity. Exactly. Real scarcity, right? And so, you know, and we live in real scarcity until relatively recently, right? And mm -hmm. it's not to say that I'm an economist. There's still plenty of scarcity, right? Yeah. I study yeah. scarcity. That's what I do. But like we have relative abundance. The dopamine in our brains, you know, that response, the way that she describes it, she describes it as like this teeter-totter, right? I get a hit of dopamine. I feel good. But the brain, because it wants to keep you motivated to go get the things that you need to survive, starts immediately trying to push back on the teeter-totter. It wants you to feel some sort of pain. So that you go so solve that the problem you go with solve dopamine. the problem, right? Okay. And it used to be that that would, you know, that took time and effort. And so like the brain didn't have to work very hard to push back. Sure. Yeah. Right? But like I just ate some candy, right? And there's, you know, you'll notice this. Most people will notice this, which is I ate some candy. I should go get some more candy. Yeah. Right? And so 
I just get up off the couch and walk back to the candy area and get another get another handful of M&Ms. But the interesting inflection point is it's not that the candy makes us feel good and I want more of that. It is that the absence of candy makes me feel bad. In order to avoid feeling bad, I go get more candy. That's right. So you're 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 never actually increasing your well-being. You're avoiding the lack of well-being that's in right. many ways. And that's the challenge, right? Is that you know what I took from Dopamine Nation is social media is a different form of abundance, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and she talks about it as as look for some people that is what gives them hits of dopamine. And it's immediate. And a lot of it's non-conscious. It's, it's non-conscious. Right there, it's I get right it out of my phone. It's autopilot. We have to develop language around it. We have to develop habit around it. We have to learn how to manage our dopamine in yeah. a world of relative abundance. Right. When I can find a way to satisfy that craving that my brain is saying, oh, that would feel good, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. without having to do much work, right? Yeah. You know, and that's that's the challenge we have with living with abundance and what we have, what's new right now. I mean, so we've had dopamine issues with sugar and alcohol and sure. drugs for, ages. For, for a long time. We're now understanding it better and hopefully that will lead to better treatments for those types of addictions. But what we have now, we have made information and entertainment as abundant as possible. Essentially, we have this media ecosystem, and it's not just social media, right? The streaming, you know, and, and going back to those indirect effects. What are we giving up, right? We've made it so easy. I don't know about you, but do you remember, like, high school and college spending hours walking around the video store? Oh, trying yeah. Trying to find, yeah. the you know, a movie? Right. Now, sometimes that happens when I have so many. I have, like, the, literally the entire library of movies and television to watch, and I'm like, well, which should I find? But, like, for the most part, it's like my head thinks it. Oh, I should watch X. Sure. Boop. Or Netflix has you know, created it before you even knew you needed yeah, it. And you, you just know. take their their recommendation and you go with it. And it's just there. Yeah. And, like, you know, I mean, I don't – it's like, well, why would I – I don't need to – this is great. Like, you know, some part of it it is. It is great. But, like, in terms of what are we giving up in terms of – actual relationships with other humans. Yeah, what is it stealing from us? You know, it's there's there's real cost mm-hmm. um, in terms of just what kind of relationships we're having and, you know, what are we doing with our lives and what are we getting out of it? And, you know, I think we have to... So hopefully the solution is what Lemke is suggesting in Dopamine Nation, which is we have to learn how to manage this teeter-totter that she describes of, you know, essentially what she describes is, you know, you get the good stuff and then your brain pushes what she calls gremlins on the other side. Mm-hmm. And the more you keep pushing, the more gremlins the more it does. gremlins are out there. And the more gre- and those gremlins start to cause chronic pain, yep. maybe anxiety, maybe mm-hmm. depression, maybe all of these things that we're seeing such in such high rates is because we have solved some of our, what we thought of as problems, right? We solve scarcity problems. As economists, that's the whole thing. We want to solve scarcity problems. Only to discover that our brains are are hardwired for scarcity. We've seen this obviously in economic development forever, right? It's like, oh, we'll solve this problem by like building this thing, and then it's like, well, that creates this problem. Oh, we're gonna be, you know, this just constant engineering that yeah. we have to keep going yeah. through is it's a challenge, and you know, but hopefully getting to this part of our brains and starting to understand it will give us new tools, new language, new norms. Will take some time, which will allow us to live with the abundance in ways that aren't making us sad, unhappy, suicidal, uh, all whatever, things. all these kinds of things that are real problems. As we close though, Bryce, I would like to leave listeners with 
two recommendations for how to address this problem in, in, in yourself. If some of the things we've talked about resonates with you, uh, two things that have worked well for me are – yeah, Montana's a big state with a lot of areas that don't have connectivity. Get out into those areas. You know, this is May and uh, the weather's getting better. The access to the high country is getting better. Get out there. You know, disconnect yourself with intention. Leave the phone behind. The other thing that I do is I set my phone to grayscale. Try that for a week. Set your phone to grayscale. You can do it in the iPhone. I will publish a link to how to do that in the show notes. But set your phone to grayscale. Commit to it for a week. Turn back the color and you'll understand how your brain responds to the stimulus. You'll feel it so dramatically that you might be compelled to stick with the grayscale because you'll notice what the uh, color and the interaction of the interface is doing to you. Any uh, recommendations you have? Well, yeah, I, there are various apps which will allow you to try and self-commit. Yeah, to that's right. Less time. The first recommendation, which is what I have done, which is you remove all of it from your phone. Yeah, that's a good right? way to you do know, it. Like make put put barriers between you and the dopamine hit. You know, at least make you go get your computer. Just like uh, the walk to the next banana tree. That's right. And you know, and then the other thing, which is. This is broader, you know, what Lemke describes is what, you know, what she did with her kids was she did a lot of what she called forced marches, right? Mm. So, you know, I think this is why the the evidence on exercise is so compelling on why it's so good for us in terms of our mental health and well-being is you're punishing, you know, you're basically saying, oh, I'm pushing on the other side. I'm making myself feel the pain. And then your brain is doing the exact reverse. It's putting the gremlins on on the pleasure side. And it's a way of trying to help, you know, do things that will help you modulate. Don't just seek pleasure. Yeah, you've got to find the balance. Uh, so figure out what helps you find the balance and, you know, try and do that. I refer to it as mandatory fun with my kids. So go out and have some mandatory fun. Yeah. They might not see it quite that way, but that's the way I frame it. Anyway, Bryce, always fun to reconnect. And uh, we, I look forward to continuing this conversation in our next installment. And until then, be well. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer, BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.